for a week to visit with Jonathan Hannigan. It was quite a privilege. You, you might ask, well, why go visit? That has to be expensive. You know, taking up vacation, the plane tickets, and all, all that travel, taking up Jonathan's time. Well, it is, and I'll tell you why we did that with a little story. Take a few minutes. Because the story starts in the 1960s. I was in grade school, and my family worshipped at a little Methodist church in Burlington, Indiana, average attendance of about 100. Now, if you know anything about the Methodist church, you know that you don't get to pick your own preacher. He's just assigned to you. And when you have a little 100 church congregation, you don't get the cream of the crop. So we looked forward to those two or three times a year when a missionary would come through. Now, we couldn't actually sponsor or send a missionary. We just send our money to some big organization where professionals took care of that in ways I have no idea how it happened. But it was always nice to see a missionary come through because he was going to have good stories. He looked forward to that. And undoubtedly, there was going to be a great slideshow. I noticed after several years that the stories had a very similar pattern. They start off with, I live in a strange and exotic place. And they have stories about how strange and exotic they were. The work is very hard. And there's stories about how hard the work was. But it was worth it because the people are so receptive. They have stories about great conversions. And then the end was always, if we just had some more money, we could do so much more. Every talk was like that. That was fine. I understood that's what missionaries did. That was their life. That was fine until I was in, uh, in college and had a chance to meet with a family friend, Joe Hodge. Joe Hodge had been a missionary for a long time. He worked with Wycliffe Bible translators. He was a missionary's missionary. He lived in the mud huts in New Guinea because... Wycliffe Bible Translators provides translations of Bibles in languages that don't even have a written language and certainly don't have the Bible. Joe Hodge would stay in these huts, live with the people, learn the meanings of all the words, and then translate first the New Testament, eventually the Bible, into their language. Wow, that's a missionary. I was looking forward to seeing him. I hadn't seen him in 10 years since he'd been on the, on the mission field. So when I got the opportunity to get him alone, I, I said, uh, Joe, uh, New Guinea, huh? But that's a, that's a strange, exotic location. And Joe said, really, the way you live would be strange and exotic to a lot of people. It wasn't really that exotic. It's just different. Oh, I was a little disappointed. In it. I said, but you know, the, the work, was, work was hard, right? And he said, well, there's some things you give up, but then there's some things you get from that. And really, I had a, a very comfortable, very enjoyable, very pleasant, relaxed lifestyle. Oh, well, the fields were white unto harvest, right? People really appreciate getting the Bible in their own language. He said, Brian, I've noticed that people around the world are, are kind of the same. It's just like the four soils or the narrow and wide gates. That there'll be some people that are receptive and some people that aren't. And they aren't exactly flocking to hear the gospel. Just, I did the work because everybody should have the opportunity to hear because he firmly believed that people were going to hell because they had not had the opportunity to understand the gospel. Well, I was disillusioned because one of two things had either happened. Either Joe Hodge was not a real missionary. He was just fooling me. Or all the stories I'd gotten before weren't the whole story. 
Fast forward to 1999, when a, a member of this congregation, Dr. Mike Modsley, was recruited by Christian Missionary Fellowship, a restoration movement that put missionaries and missionary doctors together on the mission field. He first went to Ethiopia, and that was a little tough for he and his wife, mainly for his wife, Brenda, and then wound up in Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast. And he asked me to come visit. I said, really, Dr. Mike, it's going to cost a lot of money. He wanted Kathy and I and one of our children, who is friends with Adam, his child, to go over and visit. I said, why don't, why don't I just send you the money instead? Wouldn't that be better? He said, no, that would not be better. You need to come. You need to see how this works. I said, okay. I look forward to the opportunity. We saved our money and went over there. And we saw an incredible mission work. Now, when I got back, I got the opportunity to report on that. So I won't do that again. I'm sure several of you were here and remember that because I dressed up real nice. <laughs> but I saw work. And the Muslims are a very closed people to try to reach. But if you can cure their children, if you can quite literally keep their children from dying, then they'll listen to you. So the doctor, Dr. Modsley, and the missionary worked together, and they did some wonderful work. It was, it was really incredible. I was proud to see that. On Thursday evenings, all the people from the Western world got together and met. Not all of them, but most of them. Most of them were missionaries. We tend to forget that even though we send missionaries, denominations send missionaries too. And Catholics have sent missionaries for hundreds of years. They sent them well before the Reformation. And so the Restoration Movement are not the only people there on the mission field. And so on Thursday, we'd meet with different missionaries from different large denominations. And I heard stories from them and stories about other missionaries that had come and gone, stories that were kind of disturbing. One very large denomination that you'd recognize required that the missionaries put their kids in boarding school. The mission field was too dangerous a place. So the missionaries that I talked to in a Bangaroo had their kids in a boarding school in Yamasukro, which was two hours arduous drive away. They saw their kids once or twice a month for a day at a time. I thought, that can't be right. Uh, no matter what good you could do as a missionary, what would be worth it to, to give up your family, to give up, to give up raising your kids for a number of years? Yeah. I didn't like that. Another denominational group there had a method of evangelism. What they would do is they would take their white Land Rover with an electric generator and a video projector, drive out into a rural village with no electricity. They'd show the Jesus movie, a very popular movie, still very popular, about half hour long, about the life of Jesus, and say, how many of you people now believe in Jesus? Virtually every hand goes up. We saw him right there. How many of you people want to become Christians? That all you have to do is pray this prayer. Eh, why not? They'd pray the prayer, fill out a card, and the people could report conversions. Now, if that sounds bad, it, it was. There's nothing that the missionaries did that could be replicated by anybody. Uh, the Second Timothy two two, where you teach people to you know, what you learn so they can teach others. None of that was there. The missionaries weren't especially proud of it, but to stay on the mission field, they had to report so many conversions. If they were low, that's just the way they made it up. It's what they had to do to continue to do the work they were 
wanting to do. Another very large denomination said enough money to have a building built, a church building built. It wasn't elaborate, held about 200 people, but it had air conditioning. And this is an equatorial climate. They have two different seasons, hot and wet, hot and dry. It, it, was, it was amazing. And most of the people didn't have any access to being in a building that had air conditioning. He could fill up the building any time he wanted to open the doors, especially if it was in the middle of the afternoon, it was especially hot, which he tended to do. If he was behind in his attendance, he'd have a special service for a week. In a city of 70,000 people, you could always find a couple hundred who wanted to get in out of the heat. His sermons were terrible, but it didn't make any difference. He could report what he needed to report. Didn't meet, but heard stories about an independent missionary. Independent in that there was no sending church. There was no sponsoring church. He and his wife decided to become missionaries, go to Africa on their own, went to several different congregations where they had friends or relatives and raised money. When they went on the mission field, Maybe at one time they did great work. Now they're pretty much on permanent vacation. And every two years they come back, raise more money, and go back and do essentially nothing. Heard of missionaries that ran their congregations with an iron fist. Heard of missionaries that would hire evangelists to go out and help them. The salary for a, uh, for a, a secretary or a clerk was about $120 a month. So for $600 you could hire five. For $1,200, you could hire 10, teach them to be evangelists, send them out. Anybody see a problem, a potential problem with a 20-something-year-old evangelist that has 10 people in his employment that are accountable to him for their sustenance for their family? That's just a recipe for things going wrong. And it often did. We saw and heard about the wreckage of missionary efforts that had left destruction in their wake and many times just enough Christianity to inoculate the people it's exposed to, to the real thing. People were not going to be Christians because they had seen what they had done. It was very sad. It was very eye-opening. I realized that not all mission work is the same. And if you don't go visit, you don't know. That's all besides the problem of the culture. You have a young missionary who's working on the field. Let's use Africa for an example because it's a long way away and safe for us to uh, talk about. What do you do when someone comes to your congregation and he has two wives? You have to divorce one to become a Christian? That doesn't sound right. You can be a Christian and have two wives, but if you are already a Christian, you can't marry and have two wives. What do you do if somebody that had two wives wants to become an elder? He divorced one. No, no. What if one died? I don't know. It's just strange. And those are the kind of problems that a young missionary will have in Africa. In West Africa, people could not conceive of singing and not dancing. So do you let them dance when they're singing in the church? And if they're just kind of moving, you know, is that okay? They go too far away? You put limits on them? What if they want to, once they go, go around the aisle? No, you can't do that. That's too far. But what's the Bible say about that? Well, the Bible doesn't say much about that. You have to make those decisions. And missionaries have a tough job. 
I don't want to impugn the motives of anybody who's on the mission field. But I knew that there had to be a better way. Later, in 1999, Kathy and I got to go to Toluca. And we went there because it was the first installation of elders in the church there in Toluca. And it was, a, it was an exciting time. Now, Northside uh, supports the, the school there. We never have supported the church, although some individuals here have supported uh, Jody Jones and other missionaries there. But what happened is a group of five, team of five missionaries, went to this city where there was no Church of Christ and started one. It was painful. A lot of things went wrong. Some of the group left. Other people joined. But over the course of, if I remember right, 12, perhaps 13 years, they developed a congregation that was self-self-self, we call it. And by that, I mean they were self-governing. The missionaries no longer led. They had elders that made decisions. That's nice. They were self-supporting. The churches that had started put the money in to start. When they pulled their funding out, the church would keep going on its own. Self-governing, self-supporting, and self-propagating. That church, on its own then, would send out missionaries to different places. They were able to plant other churches. Once the missionaries left and the missionaries are gone from that church, the, the, uh, now it runs on its own. Jody Jones and his team did a wonderful thing. It is beautiful. There are many, many souls that have gone to heaven and will go to heaven in the future because of his good work. Mission work that's very bad and mission work that's very good. How do you do it the right way? Having seen all this, I thought, I wonder how the churches of Christ do. And let me summarize my investigation by saying not very well. A lot of times churches would send money. They'd use the uh, what we uh, not so generously call I have an uncle method of picking missionaries. Some in the congregation has a, a relative or friend who wants to be a missionary, and so you send them a few dollars every month with, with no accountability. We decided we weren't going to do that. We're going to do things differently. We're going to do things better. By that time, we started the mission oversight team. We went and uh, went to some seminars to learn how to do this well. Um, there are uh, Missionary Resource Network, an excellent organization that helps learn how churches learn how to do things like that. We learned how to send missionaries. We can do things, you may not know this, we can do things that very, very few churches can do. We constantly get compliments from our missionaries that work with other missionaries and say, I wish I had a sending church like yours. They would help us and work with us and, and partner with us and grow together. And that's what we do. Hold them accountable. We do that too. Basically, there are three levels of reports that we get back from our missionaries. One is the, the reports that you see and that we publish. That's almost all good news. Second is reports to our missionary oversight team. They get to hear the good news and the bad news. They get to hear the hard things that happen on the mission field. And I can tell you Satan is very much at work on the mission field. Every missionary I've talked to within the first few weeks of being on the mission field has stories of incredible attacks by Satan. But the ones that persevere through that can do a great thing. It just makes sense that Satan would attack the people that are doing good work. 
We look for high opportunity ways, high leverage ways, and the school is a good way to do that. Church plannings are a good way to do that. Uh, the, having employees in other countries is just difficult. But we, we are good at it, and we're getting better. Now, we don't provide 100% support for our missionaries. It would be nice if we did, because that way when they come on furlough, they just pretty much have to visit us and their family. It would be efficient. It would save their time. But we could support fewer missionaries if we did that. So we ask our missionaries to raise support from other places to go along with the support we give. That way we can administer more missionaries. Now, I didn't mean to spend too much time on the dark side of mission work, but you need to know it exists. You need to know that we know about it, and you need to know that we do as good a job as anybody I know in conquering that and using the money that you give wisely and effectively to God's glory. Now, that explains why we went. Let me tell you about Jonathan and what he's doing there. He's doing very well. Uh, he's uh, working hard. He is uh, just a, a great, has a great heart for people and his work. Let me tell you in three different phases about what he does. First is living in a big city. Second will be Jonathan's actual work, and then I'll talk about Jonathan. Jonathan lives in a very large city. You measure cities different ways, either the, the city limits or the municipality, the, the region that's governed altogether, or the, the uh, urban area, the total area of, of uninterrupted people without fields. The total urban area uh, although it's hard to measure exactly, of Buenos Aires is about 19 million people. The city itself is uh, about half the size, the core city is about half the size of Wichita and has more people in it than the state of Kansas. The density is, is just amazing. We spent all week and uh, never saw an open field except on the way to and from the airport, and even then it was only short stretches. One of the things I wanted to do while I was there is look at the stars, because I don't know if you thought about this or not. We can see the North Star here. In the Southern Hemisphere, you can't see the North Star. I thought, I want to be sure and look, there's a replacement called the Southern Cross. You can navigate with that. I want to be sure and see that. We were never at a place at night that was dark enough that you could see more than one or two stars. There is city everywhere. It is amazing. He, Jonathan lives in Palermo, which is a, a fairly nice area of Buenos Aires. It's not luxurious, but uh, they have uh, professionals there. There's not much manufacturing in Palermo. They're in the city center. So the people that are there are either students or office workers of some kind, a lot of professionals. You say, oh, we put up Jonathan in a nice part of the city. Why don't we have him go to the very poor people? Isn't what missionaries are supposed to do? To go to the very poorest of the poor and help them out? Well, that's one way to do mission work. But if you do mission work that way, and God bless the people that do it that way, that's just fine. But if you do mission work that way, then you will not have a self-self-self church. They might become self-governing for a while, but they will never become self-sustaining, and they will never become self-propagating. The poorest of the poor cannot do that. You have to have a mix of people 
in order to, to do that, and so that's why Jonathan is where he is. Crime in the big city is serious. Petty crime is very high. You have to be, have to be very careful uh, about that, like you do in a lot of big cities. You don't carry a wallet in your back pocket. Uh, you will lose it to a pickpocket. When Jonathan rides on the bus, he carries his ubiquitous backpack in front, like everybody does, to keep things being stolen out of it. Uh, serious crime is uh, unfortunately rising. Uh, the, the government is, is not really stable. The police are not well regarded. They, they don't, uh, uh, there's problems. And so uh, it is uh, a dangerous city, not nearly as dangerous as Caracas. But you should pray for Jonathan's safety. It's a very hedonistic city. To say it is sin-soaked is not an overstatement. There is very little Christianity or any religion there at all. Uh, Jonathan does not have a car. He travels a lot by foot, some by buses and subways. A taxi is a time machine. You can uh, pay for a, a taxi and, and shave a half hour or perhaps an hour of your commute. Inflation is officially 35%. Unofficially, it's 50%. And Argentina in the past has had serious hyperinflation, 500, 800, 1,000% per year and more. People remember that, and so the, the money is unstable. Now, fortunately, we paid Jonathan in dollars, and the exchange rate, the official exchange rate, is 8.3 pesos to the dollar. The street exchange rate is 11 pesos to the dollar. The, that exchange rate is what saves Jonathan from the high inflation, but it's very uneven. Some months, he comes up pretty good. The exchange rate versus the inflation rate works to his advantage. Some months, it works to his disadvantage. And it's, uh, just recently, his utilities, which were state-subsidized after the 2007 economic meltdown, were, the subsidies were being removed. So his utilities doubled and will probably double again in the next few months. So it's, it's uh, not near as stable as it is here. The city runs very late, like a lot of cities do. We were at lunch at 2 o'clock, and it wasn't very crowded. And Jonathan said, good, we beat the rush. And sure enough, by 2.30, it was full. Dinner the same way. Uh, at 9 o'clock, it was almost empty. You got a seat anywhere. And by 9.30, it was full. And when we left, by 10.30, it was still full. Like uh, a, a lot of uh, different areas, you, you greet people with a kiss. This is, this is hard, both men and women, both coming and going, every church member. We had choir practice. If someone was late for choir practice, everybody lined up, and there was all this kissing. You touch right cheek to right cheek, and you make the kissing sound. You have to learn that. Because if you're not used to doing it, you make it too loud. It's right there in their ear, and they're like... What are you doing here? Or if you, I said, what if I just don't make the kissing sound? John said, oh, no, you can't do that. That's like, oh, I'm too good for you. I'm, I'm just here. I'm just putting my cheek out there. I don't really welcome you. So you have to learn to, to make the kissing sound with men and, and with women. And it, it was a, a little strange. We were told not to say we were from America. We were from the United States because they're Americans, too. They're South Americans. And we're just North Americans. And... Uh, Working in a big city is just, is just different. Uh, Jonathan's work, he has a church that meets in his home of about 12 members, about 12 regulars. In addition to that, there's always a few visitors 
there. The members look a lot like Jonathan. They are young. They are well-educated. Uh, I'd say upperly mobile professionals or students. Uh, the church supports Hiro, Hiro and Joanna, uh, not full-time, but part-time. They collect enough money from those people that they can support Hiro and Jonathan and Hiro work together. That's good. That gives Jonathan some accountability, and, and uh, they, they work together very well. They have many, many activities. It's just endless. Um, book club, where they do reading in Spanish. English club, where they do readings uh, in English. Uh, choir, coffee shop, um, uh, counseling, coffee shop growth, coffee shop Bible studies. When you don't have a church building to work from, then a coffee shop is a neutral place for, for both parties. They take mission trips. Uh, that little church goes on mission trips. Jonathan knows lots of people in lots of places. They have uh, begun crocheting scarves for the homeless as a, an outreach there, and they have learned how to do that. You don't take pictures of the homeless people. You don't approach them alone. You, you go, go together, but just two, not a whole group at, at a time. They do lots of social things all all he does is evangelical. And uh, then Jonathan, of course, teaches at, at the Bible Institute. Now, you may say, uh, a choir? Really? Is a choir evangelical? What, what about these readings? Is he, that's good. And that reminds me of an old missionary joke. And uh, the joke is that someone has come to the missionary to find out uh, what he's doing. And he says, all right, what are we doing today? And the missionary says, well... Today, we're going to do door knocking. And uh, his sponsor says, door knocking? That hasn't worked since the 70s. That is outdated. What else? He says, well, uh, we're going to do street preaching. And the sponsor says, street preaching really cheapens the gospel. I really don't like that. What else? He says, well, then there's the coffee shop Bible study. You can't get people serious about the Bible in a coffee shop. That's crazy. So the missionary says, all right, well, what do you do to bring people to your church? And the sponsor had to admit, well, people just come. I really don't do anything. And the missionary says, you may not like the way I do things, but I like the way I do things better than the way you don't do things. And every missionary identifies with that. They'll, they will get criticized whatever they do, but they do whatever they can to get people to come. And uh, if you have ideas, pass them, pass them on to the missionaries. If you don't like what they do, then uh, find something better that you have done yourself and you know works. Jonathan himself is doing very well. We uh, took a lot of things down to him. He's working with David and, Chrissy, David and Kelsey Criswell, who are there, sponsored by another group for short-term mission work. They were a lot of fun. Uh, Jonathan is having to make uh, Corinthians Church kind of elder decisions, and they are difficult. Jonathan's father is an elder in Denver, and that, that's very uh, helpful. He could use help if you'd like to visit, even if you don't speak Spanish. There's enough people there that want to speak English that so he could pair you uh, with people. Jonathan wants to get a master's degree, so we're just discussing that, a master's degree in global service, which is essentially missionary work. You can't call it missionary work because a lot of countries will let you in if you're, especially as missions. Um, this is a, a little 
Mentioned don't send the stuff to Jonathan. He has to go down to the dock, take several hours, pay customs. It's, it's just a pain. Send him emails and letters. That works really well. Think about what Jonathan is doing toward our goal of self, self, self. The church already knows how to give enough to support, at least in part, Hiro, the helper to Jonathan there. Uh, they're working on becoming self-governing. Jonathan is able to disseminate some of the decisions to Hiro and some of the others there, and they're working with these mission trips on planting the seeds of becoming self-propagating. Uh, he's doing very well. Uh, he would like to have a building, but uh, that is that it's not time for that yet. It may come time. I have a few pictures I'll show to stuck with you real quickly. This is a stack of books. Before we left, uh, Jonathan had said a lot of, sent a lot of books to Mark for us to bring to him, which we were happy to do. So I sent him this picture. I said, are these all the books? He said, oh, no. And sure enough, there, there wound up being about three times that, that many books. Jonathan loves to read and loves to, to give out books. These are the suitcases for Kathy and I. The ones on the ground are for Kathy and I. The ones on the counter are things we're taking to Jonathan and the Criswells. Uh, when we get there... Uh, traveling in an airplane for 11 hours. The picture's out of focus. That's because I'm out of focus after traveling 11 hours on the airplane. And Jonathan uh, took us around the city because you fly overnight. You get there in the morning. This is a, the famous Tango Bridge in the Buenos Aires. And then uh, Jonathan takes us back to our home, his home, that evening. He says, Are you want to take a nap before dinner? I said, yeah, that, that would be wonderful. I, this time I've been up for 42 hours, so I, I nap for half an hour. He knocks on the door. He says, okay, time for dinner, and all these people are there. And so if I look a little weird, it's because I am. Kathy's in good shape, though. Uh, I, I could name all these people. They're all wonderful people, part of the church there, and they were just eager to see us. And ate dinner about 10 o'clock, and they left about midnight. Now, this was going to form a pattern for the rest of the time. We did not finish an evening. People didn't leave their home, or we didn't leave their home, until midnight every night. And they just, the whole city runs late. Now, they don't wake up till 9 in the morning, but um, we were walking around the city, and there's the tango steps. I tried to get Jonathan and Kathy to reenact that, and they wouldn't do it. This is one of the largest bookstores in South America, one of the largest in, in the world. Just a, a beautiful place, and converted theater, and we had a good time. This is a, um, uh, Jessica is a friend of Jonathan's. She's, uh, she's a folk singer. This is in the square. I'll turn around and look the other way. These are the people that are listening to her. She's doing a concert, and she does Christian songs mixed in with traditional folk songs and has a Christian message. message. So all Jonathan's regulars invited their friends, and they had a, a lot of people there. Like I said, everything he does is evangelistic. Can you help me out there? Thank you very much. And afterwards, we have to go have dinner. I can name all those people, wonderful people, once again. And this is late at night. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you. Evidently, my clicker is... If you can look, I'm taking a picture, uh, look over the music, and take a picture into a mirror, and you'll see 14 people there doing choir practice. And this is... One of the many activities he has, and after that, we have to go have dinner. Like we have dinner every night. People, this is Jonathan's kitchen. Uh, more of the people of, of the church, and Jonathan is extremely hospitable. He lives in a, in a apartment that is big for Buenos Aires. It has three bedrooms, and he uses that like a church building. Uh, he could have a much nicer small apartment, but he prefers to have this where he can use. There's 
Kathy and some uh, the Chris Wells and some wonderful people and having, having church service with the mate that you've heard about before on the table. The lady in the foreground is Stephanie who, who was baptized. There's Hiro uh, and Joanna and Jonathan and Kathy were uh, talking about the future of the church. Jonathan has a mate in his hand. It's kind of ubiquitous. This is a, another apartment of the Chris Wells and we're have friends there, and we stay there until about 10 o'clock, and I'm exhausted, and they, they say, oh, let's go have dinner, because we haven't eaten yet, and yeah, we're going to have it, we're going to have a Jonathan fast, well, how are we going to get there, well, we're going to walk there, how far is it, oh, it's just half an hour, so at 10 o'clock, we start on a half hour walk, and we're going to have dinner later, I'm not used to running that late, but we did get to have breakfast in some beautiful shops, there's a, uh, reminds me of the 1930s in, in the U.S., uh, uh, Reminds us, the keys remind us that things are different there, and the, the things just work different, like the, the like the locks. A lot of things work differently, and then this reminds us that oops, that uh, we're on our on our way home. Thank you very much. I appreciate your kind attention. It was a, a wonderful trip. Jonathan is doing good work. One other thing, I, I fear that perhaps we have underchallenged you with this goal of one hundred forty-two thousand dollars. Raising money for mission work is kind of tricky because we commit to the missionaries for a long term, and we really don't know what you, the congregation, wants to support. So uh, we, we plan these things and we put this money out. If, if uh, you don't want to support all these people that we've talked about, then just give us less money and we won't support them and God's work won't get done. That doesn't sound right, does it? If you want to support more missionaries, there are lots and lots of other people, very good works, and we know how to pick out the very best and treat them well. And we can do more of God's work if you want to. We're happy to work together with you. Thank you very much. Rob will now come up and talk about his, uh, his trip. And Hola. Now, to be totally biblical, somebody needs to translate that for me. Hello. Good. So you guys have all had your first Spanish lesson tonight. We'll have certificates in the back. I uh, don't believe that, but, uh, but anyway, hola is very common in South America. Um, Ely and I had the pleasure for eight days uh, this month to go down there and spend some time with uh, Roberto and Betty Zapeta. Their, their daughter, Elena, lives with them. Uh, they have two other children, Joc- Jocelyn, who lives in Oregon, and uh, Jarrett, with a T, who is actually part of the AIM program down in South Africa. We were just really privileged to have them open their home up to the, uh, us. They fed us. They took us around for eight days. And uh, we really got to see their lives. We got to see an insight into the church. We got to see an in, a real insight in terms of what was going on at the school. And the bottom line, the most important thing I want you guys to know from our trip is that they are so grateful They're so thankful for everything that the church has done for them and the support over the years. You guys have supported them forever. And they just, they looked us in the eye and they said, look, we just want you to take back the message that thank you so much uh, for all the support, the financial and the prayers that you guys have given us these many years. Ely and I personally sat down with several people who uh, told us that it's because of Elib, of them becoming a Christian, and it's because of the church down there that they stay a Christian. And that just really warmed our hearts. We met a lot of people, and, and we just want you guys to know, bottom line, is that we met so many people with great hearts that were excited or on fire 
to share the good news. Uh, Raul Solis, who's the evangelist, one of the evangelists down there at Elib, we got to have a really good talk. He talked about his conversion. He's, his dad is a Supreme Court justice, retired. And his dad wasn't real crazy about him becoming a Christian. But he became a Christian anyway. And in his office, he broke down in tears because he wanted people to know the Bible. He, wanted, he didn't want anybody. He came out of Catholicism. And uh, he, he didn't want anybody to be to be fooled by that kind of religion. And uh, it was incredible because Ely was crying, Raul was crying, and my, uh, my allergies were acting up, just to, be, just to be quite honest. And do I have the clicker? Oh, I do have the clicker. <clears throat> That's the bottom line. It's about changed hearts. Ely and I went down there. We wanted to tell them eye to eye that we're here for you, not just for money, but we're here for you as partners in the gospel. We're here, to, uh, we're here because we love you guys. And there's just an incredible warmth. Hispanics are really warm. I love Hispanics. I'm married to a Hispanic. Warm, uh, very affectionate, that kind of thing. They never get to anywhere on time. Uh, I'm glad my wife doesn't have that problem. You know, and so don't count on them to be uh, any, anywhere late. We have this gringo, you know, you gotta, you're there by 7, you've got to get there, you know, five minutes till. But anyway, that, that's the nuts and bolts of everything that, I, that I'm going to talk about um, tonight. It's just they appreciate, they love us. They were happy that we came down. They were happy that I ate most of their food. And uh, didn't, my stomach didn't get too upset. I love hot food, but hot food doesn't love me, if you know what I mean. This is a picture taken outside the church. The church has been paid for. Uh, Ilya's in the middle. I see Roberto and Betty and a couple other people and a couple kids. Uh, it's a building that's, again, paid for. Uh, they have about 300 people there. Toluca is a, a city of 2.5 million. Uh, it's at 8,700 feet above sea level. Just to give you a perspective, I think we're around 1,400 feet above sea level. Uh, you have Colorado, like 14,000 feet, so it's about halfway between uh, Pikes Peak and Wichita. I was huffing and puffing for the first two or three days. So that altitude sickness really kind of kicked in. Ilya was just great, uh, but uh, I was a crybaby for the first three days. Uh, this is the Iglesia, uh, Santa, yeah, de, Iglesia de Santa Ursula Church which is kind of, oh, I hope I said that right, I probably mangled it. Uh, but this is a small group that's kind of an offshoot from Toluca. Uh, you see Ilya, I'm there in the middle in the dark shirt. And they're just, uh, we were there Saturday, uh, and uh, Roberto had a, a great lesson. He talked about Corinthians. He talked about using illustrations when we're uh, meeting people and we're actually trying to convince them to become Christians. Use an illustration from your life. Very effective. Uh, here, uh, if you'll notice, one of the gentlemen, he has one of those little dispenser cups uh, for communion. We asked Roberto before we went down there, do you guys need anything? He said, well, it's been very difficult for us to find these little dispenser cups, you know, the kind that squirt into the, uh, into the communion cup. The one that they had was like really old, it had been broken down, and so they've been trying to just manage. Ilya, to her credit, drove all over Wichita and even had to go to Hutch just to find two of these little dispenser cups. And they really appreciated that. 
And uh, so here he is. He's showing the dispenser cups, and it was really cool. It was a, I thought it was a great gesture from us to uh, just show them that we love them. Uh, this is a picture of the assembly. It's a large room. They've got 350 people. They usually have about 50 visitors. They do go, uh, quite well. Victor Salgado, you really can't see his face, uh, had a great sermon. Uh, that day they also baptized uh, one, a, a young lady. Jokovet, I think, was her name. This is uh, for lunch. We had a tostada lunch and, uh, with frijoles, which is beans, uh, and a few other things that I can't pronounce, but uh, if you have any questions, please see, see my wife, and she'll be able to let you know. Great fellowship. The girls are real aggressive. They, I was kind of like being a gringo, you know, holding back and getting in line. These girls just, you know, getting right in there into the table, and I said, Elia, you know, what's going on? These girls are like butting in line. She said, man, you've got to be Hispanic when you get down here because you're not going to be able to eat. These people like get in there. It's just a cultural thing that, uh, that I had to learn. I was being like real polite, you know, and I didn't want to create an international incident. You know, like gringo, you know, pushes over little girls in church and so have a whole bunch of, you know, people from Mexico running into Texas trying to take us over again. I don't know. It would have been a mess. But I tried to avoid that if, if at all possible. Lunch was great. Uh, this uh, was Francisco. I can't remember his last name, but this was like uh, this was after lunch. It's kind of like their Sunday school. They have life groups, several life groups. Uh, he talked about um, uh, not not putting our treasures here, putting them in heaven. Uh, so that was good. Some of the girls. It was really cute because uh, we were actually playing volleyball too after church, and I was telling Elia I had these girls kind of circling around me. They spoke no English, and they were just all really shy. You know, I was the gringo, you know, and they were all like, you ask them, you ask them. I didn't have to, like, understand Spanish, but it was really cute. They came up, one of the girls kind of real shyly came up and said, would you be on my volleyball team? Oh, you know, that was really cute. So uh, we played volleyball, lost terribly. So anyway, uh, that's our, that's uh, one of the volleyball teams. I just had to man up with the guys. So uh, Raul is actually in the middle, and uh, the other young men are around us. I'm on the left. This is a picture of uh, one of the, the... In the middle of Toluca, there's this huge hill. They call it the Calvary, I think, or something. You can walk up there. You can ba- basically see a panoramic vision of Toluca. Very, very pretty. And you'll see the buildings are, really aren't high. You've got two, 2.5 million people living there. It's a lot of people in a, in a very small space. Uh, this is a picture of everybody. Again, uh, Ilya, Raul, uh, Juan Carlos is on the right. Uh, I should have brought my glasses up here, but this is, this is uh, the group. We went up there. We had a Devo. We had a prayer. It was, just a, it was a great time uh, with them. Uh, this is Roberto in the office. That's one of the booklets that they send out. Uh, I'm not going to read it for you because I can't. Uh, but that's one of the school booklets that they have. Uh, this is also Roberto between, uh, I believe, Sunday school and church. Uh, he's talking about how new songs and that kind of thing. So I looked at a lot of these pictures and I said, man, I took a lot of back-of-the-head pictures. So next time, you know, I'll try to take it from the front, but uh, forgive me for that. I'm not a, not a very good photographer, but I learn. I'm slow, but I get there. Uh, this, is a, this is a devotional. Um, for Elib, uh, and you'll see about 20 people there, and they always have a devotional in the morning. They have classes Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, 10 o'clock, and then an evening class at 7 o'clock. So they always start their day with a devotional. It was really a cool thing. 
This is Roberto with um, uh, Edwin Medina. He's a third-year uh, student. He's on scholarship. And uh, we actually got to participate in the class, and that was a great class on the Bible and how to break out thoughts in uh, Third John. Uh, this is Mario. Uh, he is teaching probably a first or a second level class. You'll see in the middle there's a, uh, there's a computer screen. On that, I believe there are about two or three people who were dialing in. So in class, you have one, two, three, four, five students in class. And in addition to that, uh, they're Skyping or whatever their technology is to have three, two or three people uh, in class with him who can ask questions. It's the coolest thing. Uh, this, is also, this is Kim Solis, and there's four. You can't see the fourth person, but there's uh, four ladies in that ladies' class. Um, just to give you an idea of the culture, you have Spanish, you have Mexican, you have uh, native Mexican, uh, you have all kinds of culture down there. This building has been around since, like, uh, the conquistadors. So you just get to see a lot of history. Uh, again, this is, a, uh, this is a chapel or a um, cathedral at the top of a hill. I walked all the way up to that hill, and uh, believe me, I kind of regretted it because I was huffing to get up those steps. Uh, this is kind of the beauty. Uh, there's a botanical garden, and uh, you'd, you'd have to see this is just a huge place. This is only one part of it. Beautiful uh, plants, beautiful glass things around, just absolutely gorgeous. Uh, who knows what this is? Any guesses? It looks like crickets to me. What, what in the world would you do with crickets? Eat them. Anybody ever eat a cricket? What do they taste like? I had a cricket. Elia had, is it okay for me to say? Elia said it's okay for me to say that she had crickets too. We, uh, and we did it just because, oh, that's kind of cool. We, went, we were in a market, and they were just kind of laying there. They weren't moving or anything, just so you guys know. But uh, we just had to pick them up just because they were there. And actually, uh, it tastes like chicken. I'm kidding on that. They actually taste like popcorn, and uh, they were a little bit crunchy. The fresher ones you kind of don't want to eat, you know, that can kind of be a little gross. But we did eat crickets, and uh, she kissed me later, so that was kind of a good thing. So anyway, uh, one of the last things that we did is we went to the, um, I can't pronounce it. I wrote it down, but I can't pronounce it. Uh, they're pyramids that the Aztecs lived in. I don't, we don't know if they built the pyramids or not. But Friday, we had a Devo. We went up, we climbed up to these pyramids. Uh, they asked me to actually do the Devo, and so I was touched. I talked about uh, unity and, and, uh, and uh, being able to breathe, because it was kind of nice to breathe. Uh, anyway, I told them that my wife saved me from the life of a gringo with uh, white uh, socks that went up to my knees and the colored bands that went around. You know, I, I, she saved me from the life of being a gringo, so that was a... That was my funny opener for them. They didn't understand it. <laughs> anyway, that's a picture of them at the top. Uh, and uh, they're just, they're a great group. We, we love them. We, we came very close to them. Uh, they love God. They love to talk about Jesus. Uh, they just have great conviction. It's like I told them, I wish I could bring 20 people back. You know, we just fire up Wichita because of the love that they have for God and the love that they have for the lost.
Um, this is, I think this is the last slide, but this is Victor Salgado, his mom and his wife, and ask Elia again for his wife's name. There's no way I could pronounce it. But uh, we were at Kim and, uh, uh, Kim and Raul Solis's house, great house, uh, great fellowship. This was Friday before we left. And so that kind of just wrapped up our visit. But we, we want you guys to know, again, they love you guys. They appreciate everything. And, uh, and there are some lessons that I told, told them we wanted to learn about how to effectively do missions. And they were pumped up. They were excited because they felt like we admired what they did. And so the, they got them fired up before we got down. And so they fired us up with their faith. And so we just, it was just a mutually, a mutually faith-building time. So I think that's it. So, um, As an invitation, if there's anybody here tonight that is in need, in need of anything that the church can provide, uh, prayers, thoughts, uh, if there's anything that you feel like you need to come forward, uh, this is the time... Um, if you'd like to be baptized, if you'd like to learn what it means to be a Christian, please come forward uh, as we stand and sing. Thank you.